Near the end of his life, Moses stood on the edge of the land of Canaan and looked out at the people of God and gave them a very particular instruction. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance to possess, and you possess it and settle in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for God's name. I wonder, I wonder how many of the Puritan separatists who knew their Bible so well, I wonder how many of them thought about that passage from Deuteronomy as they set sail from England to a world they thought of as new, to receive or take the land that they felt God was giving them. I wonder if any of those on the ship made a connection between passages like this one and the future that lay ahead of them. I wonder whether their attitude shifted at all when the vessel that was supposed to accompany the Mayflower, the Speedwell, sprung a leak, forcing both ships to return to harbor for repairs. And I wonder if the connection eroded even further when, about 200 miles out at sea, a second time the Speedwell sprung a leak, forcing both ships to return. I wonder if they made that connection of promise when their voyage was delayed and when the pilgrims discovered that the Speedwell, a ship which was thought to be essential to the success of this expedition, wasn't able to make the journey with them. I wonder how many of those pilgrims were thinking of Deuteronomy as they made their way starting in September across the rough Atlantic, buffeted by those strong autumn winds as the waves crashed onto the ship. And I wonder how many of them were thinking of a promised land when they ended up not in Virginia, where they were supposed to settle, but as we know, near Cape Cod, unable to journey further south on the coast because of those strong winds. And I wonder how many of them felt like they were fulfilling God's promise and receiving God's blessing when that harshest winter they had ever experienced befell them and disease spread through their community. I wonder. We are drawn to the myth of Thanksgiving, aren't we? It's what pulls us back into the story every year at this time. It's, it's why we tell that story to our children. It's why... We still dress our preschoolers up with cardboard hats and headdresses and give them stereotypical-sounding Native American names like Doe Princess and Little Bear. It's the myth of that triumph over winter that draws us in. But it seems that we're searching for more than a myth these days. Maybe you read the piece in this morning's New York Times by David Silverman, where he invites us to consider whether we tell that myth as a story of pilgrims and Indians, whether we might tell it a little more true to the story. We love to tell the story about that first encounter between European settlers and Native Americans who had been a little offstandish but finally warmed up when the pilgrims needed their help. We tell that part of the story, of course, because it's harder isn't it, 
to talk about the fact that those Native Americans had experienced European colonization for a while, that they had been rounded up and enslaved for almost a century by that point. How else do you think they knew English? How often when we tell that story do we bother to mention the name of the peoples who received those settlers, the Wampanoag? How often is that a part of our story? How often when we tell the story about how those settlers needed to learn how to plant corn and survive in that harsh place, how often do we remember the civilization that was already there, the roads and the trading posts and the monuments and the houses and the villages that we kind of borrowed or took from those who already had them? David Silverman in his piece this morning talks about the treaty that was signed between the settlers and the Native American peoples as the, the reason we think of America as a gift to us without remembering the genocide and the forced removal of the peoples who had that land before we got there. We're drawn to the myth, but we need more than a myth. When the truth finds us, it erodes what we love about that story, what we need about that story. And I wonder whether stories like the one from Deuteronomy, the story of Moses' instruction to God's people, I wonder whether that might help us recapture what we love about Thanksgiving and do it in a way that doesn't lessen our experience of this holiday, but actually deepens it. When the harvest of that new land is gathered for the first time, Moses told them, take some of that first fruit and put it in a basket and carry that basket with you to the place that God will choose for God's name to dwell and hand that basket to a priest. And when the priest takes that basket and places it in front of the altar, say these words. My ancestor was a wandering Aramean. Rehearse before God and before that priest the story of salvation, how God heard the cries of your ancestors when they were oppressed in Egypt and set them free. How God sheltered God's people through the wilderness and brought them into this land. How God led you here and prospered your efforts so that you might enjoy the bounty of this land. And then what does Moses tell them to do? To share that bounty and to celebrate it with those who don't have a bounty, the Levites, the priests who didn't have a land of their own, but also the aliens in their midst. What a curious thing that God's people would be reminded of those who had been displaced, of those whose bounty had been taken from them, and yet reminded of that in a way that doesn't cheapen their experience of thanksgiving, but enhances it. The act of ritualized thanksgiving gives us the chance to remember not only the myth, but the truth underneath it. The opportunity to rehearse for ourselves, the source of all our blessings deepens our appreciation for all that has been given to us. We all know too well that instinct within us to take full credit for our success, that it's our hard work, it's our wisdom, it's our resources and the careful use of those resources that has produced our bounty. But isn't there more to the story than that? Although our instinct might be 
to celebrate our accomplishments, at the very root of thanksgiving is a gesture which acknowledges another source, that somebody else, that something else has given us these blessings. And the act of coming together at least once a year to rehearse for ourselves the sources of our blessings doesn't cheapen our experience of thanksgiving, it deepens it. You cannot engage in true thanksgiving without taking a deep dive into honesty and humility. Comforting the truth doesn't shake our thanksgiving, even if it begins to shake the myth that upholds it. Today, as you sit down at your table, give thanks for the food that is before you and for those who have prepared that food. But don't forget to give thanks for those who grew it and harvested it and washed it and packaged it and loaded it and transported it and unloaded it and put it on a shelf and sold it to you. Don't forget about the sun and the rain and the soil and the air and the nutrients that were needed to grow that food. Remembering that doesn't lessen thanksgiving for us. Similarly, as you sit at your table, remember those people who for centuries lived on the land where that food was grown, where that food was processed, where the store is built that you bought it, even the land where your own house is. For us around here, that means the Osage people and the Caddo people and the southern tip of the Sioux Nation. When we remember them, when we share with them that part of our bounty that we owe to them, it doesn't undermine our ability to be thankful. It enhances it. It deepens it. It makes our gratitude not a shell or a myth, but a truth a true expression of our gratitude for all that God has given us. Thanks be to God.